Welcome to Stories of Recovery, the MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm your host, Matt Shedd. In this episode, I talk with MAR alumnus Sean N. about growing up in a violent household, the relief he found in alcohol, and finally finding joy, peace, and connection while he was at MAR. After spending some time in sobriety, Sean relapsed and came back to MAR a second time. So spent the night in jail and uh, woke up the next morning, got out of jail at 7. At about 7.15, I was on the phone with Doug Brush saying, Doug, I, I need to come back. And Doug, in his way, said, okay, we'd love to have you. Call admissions. And so made my second trip through MAR. Thank God for it. I also got Sean's permission to speak with two MAR clinicians who worked closely with him while he was here. He just got it. And so when I was like, man, Sean relapsed, it was like, damn, that sucks. And then the other feeling was, but he's he's coming back for help. Like he's, um, it's okay. Like he's he's returning to his place, his safe place for help. And he's going to be a huge help for people here. It's clear that as he's giving to people, it's filling him up. Like there's a reciprocal relationship there. But real quick, before we get into Sean's story, if you're alumni from MAR, a family member, or just someone who wants to be involved in a night celebrating recovery and to hear some great stories of people like Sean, get your tickets now for the MAR annual banquet. They're on sale at marinc.org banquet. The event is November 12th. However, if you can't make it to the event, but you've been listening to the podcast and you're interested in supporting the work that we do here as a nonprofit, providing lasting and total recovery to people suffering from addiction and their families as well, you can visit us at marinc.org, hit the donate button in the top right corner and send us a donation to support the work that we're doing here. If you do that, go ahead and leave a note in there that you heard about us through the podcast so I can reach out and thank you for your donation and also talk about ways if you're interested and how you can get involved in helping us fulfill our mission. All right, that's enough for me. Here's Sean. I was born in 1964. I have a twin brother and an older brother and um, mom and dad, they were real young when they got married. And, um, and really, I get, you know, it was maybe more typical of the 50s and 60s marriages, but the the husband is the king of the house and the wife just does what he says. And uh, and frankly, it was just violent. Uh, it wasn't until I was in my later teens and I started asking my friends, you know, did, did your dad ever punch you? I said, well, hell no. Mm-hmm. You know, they got a, an occasional whipping. But, uh, you know, it was just normal. Uh, but it was violent. And then... Again, when we were in our twenties, we were me and my buddies were sitting around talking, and uh, it just kind of occurred to me: all of, there's about eight of us from high school. Out of all eight of us, two of them had had one or two fights in their life. The rest of them had had zero, and I've had like fifty fights. And it occurred to me that's not normal, you know. It, and I just thought it was. Uh, it's just, it's just crazy. So. Um, in the childhood, it wasn't all bad. You know, as I shared last night, there was trips to Disneyland and so forth. Uh, we played sports. Um, but it, I, th- I think, it, obviously, there's no way that trauma didn't impact my later life. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Drinking comes into the mix in high school right. pretty heavily, like pretty early on. It's just... Right. Uh, first time I got drunk, I was 15. And uh, I just remember we were going to a movie, and 
drinking Bacardi and Cokes. My brother had mixed us up some. And I just remember getting out of that truck at the parking lot of the movie theater and looking up at the stars. And for the first time in my life, it was like this. I, the words went through my head, literally. And it's, this is how I'm supposed to feel. I mean, I had found it, you know, like Bill W. says in the in the big book, I had arrived. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, it was like a white light moment. It was just this profound epiphany is that I didn't know people could feel like this. And uh, so, yeah, it's that's why I know it's a disease. It, it had that effect. So I have a physical allergy to it, whether it's dopamine, whatever it is. I have that allergy because it fixed me and I didn't even know I was broke. And so it was, uh, it, it was in, yeah, I mean, um, and starting when I was 16, it was game on, you mm -hmm. know, every weekend, sometimes during the week, every chance I got, I drink myself stupid. So then drinking's kind of a constant. You go to college, you start uh, taking English classes and get interested in creative writing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When I decided to major in English, uh, tell you the truth, it was it was almost like a path of least resistance thing. You know, I was good at it. I wanted a college degree. But once I started taking the upper level English classes, man, I loved it. It was just everything about it, the whole liberal arts experience. And I started getting straight A's. Um, and that first semester, I took a, a creative writing class. And I wasn't particularly good at it, but I loved that creative process. So you've got that kind of in the background, that love of language and literature, but you, you got to be practical and figure out how to make a living. So you start the concrete business. You, you turn out to be pretty good at that. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do after with that English degree. So I sold insurance and investments for about six or eight months and that wearing a tie to work every day. That wasn't me. Uh, but I'd started working the summer times for my dad in construction when I was 14 so I had a construction background and always liked being outside, you know, um, an office environment at that time wasn't for me. So I opened up a little concrete company and it was real small. It was just patios and driveways and so forth. Never had more than one or two employees. In 98, I was just flipping through the classified ads and I saw there's a huge construction company and they were looking for concrete foreman. And I decided, well, I'll send in a resume. So, yeah, I didn't have much of a resume, but um they called me and I decided to take that job thinking if I was working for someone else, it would be a little less stressful than working for myself. And I, I was wrong. <laughs> um, this, you know, I went from doing a thousand square foot patio, which would have been a big job, to doing like 10 and 15 acres of concrete paving. We were doing truck stops and, and state highways and airport runways. And uh, the stress of that blew my mind. Um, I went from having one or two employees to having like 15 or 20 guys under me. I was so stressed out, the only way that I could get to sleep was to drink myself to sleep. Um, but those years, it was from 98 to the end of 2002. And I don't know if there's a clinically definable diagnosis of, okay, this is when you became an alcoholic. But for me, that was my point of no return. Uh, it's That's when it took over. But it also just happened that as stressed out as I was, it turned out I was extraordinarily good at, at being a concrete foreman. Because, um, well, I was living in a state of sustained panic, you know. And uh, so 
I was good at it. I mean, I, I made that company. I rewrote the concrete division. They they expanded the concrete division around me, actually, and just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, man, I, I could, it got to where I was drinking all day, every day. Um, and I even think they probably knew, but they didn't care because I was, I was bringing in the money. Hmm. But uh, that, that was um, – that was my point of no return. I had to, I guess, because of my ego, I wanted to be that guy. You know, it's, uh, that was my comfort to be the guy that, you know, we got a problem, Sean will handle it. You know, I, I wanted to be that guy, but I couldn't be that guy. That It was false. It, it, it would, it, that's not really who I was. And just the, the stress of trying to maintain that and, you know, working 12 or 13 hours a day, um, and the, the only way that I could manage that was to drink. I mean, I, I couldn't, after a while, I couldn't sustain that pace and that level of stress and responsibility, a lot of which I took on myself, and maintain that image of myself as the guy. I, could, I couldn't do it without alcohol. I mean, there's some guys that they're not alcoholics, and they live that life, and they're happy. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's just... I. I I think maybe physiologically, I'm just not built to handle stress. Going back to my childhood and all that, you know, stress, I couldn't handle that level of stress without alcohol. So can you tell us a little bit about the crisis that brought you here to Mar the first time? The, the first time. Um, so I got my first DUI in 2005. Um and I decided just, okay, that's it. I'm going to quit drinking. Barely knew what AA was. And, you know, I do have plenty of willpower. I, I do. I quit smoking cold turkey. Willpower was never my issue. And willpower doesn't apply to addiction. That's what I didn't understand. Um, so in 2005, I said, I'm going to quit drinking. And I meant it. I'd have passed a lie detector test. I'm never drinking again. And just from willpower and hardheadedness, I didn't drink for two and a half years. Not, not once. Didn't cheat anything. And uh, business is growing that whole time, making more money than I'd ever made. My wife is happy because I'm not drinking. I'm coaching Little League Baseball. My sons think I hung the moon. My employees love me because I was a cool boss to work for. Everything is going exactly the way I wanted it to go. Everything I'd ever wanted, I got it. And I was suicidal. Uh, it, it's just... I thought alcohol was my problem. Alcohol was never my problem. Alcoholism was my problem. Alcohol is just the bad medicine that I poured on my alcoholism. So I took that bad medicine away for two and a half years. I've got alcoholism with no treatment. You know, I wasn't going to AA. It is, it's horrible. I mean, I was literally, if God had gave me a, a, given me a, a heart attack and said, you know, you can be dead. I'd have taken it in a second. You know, it was awful. So I relapsed, uh, got another DI in 2009, made a little spin through AA, but still had my business. You know, I, I, I liked it all right, but I, I wasn't serious about recovery. So I relapsed again and in 2010. And then from 2010 to 13, my business, the economy caught up and my drinking and taking Xanax, it, that caught up. My business is sliding off the cliff. Um, so in the summer of 2013, 
my wife and I have been fighting about it for years. You know, she she didn't know what to do any more than I did. And uh, so finally she talked to her mother and stepfather, and uh, he's a doctor that has familiarity with addiction. And they said, look, you've got to give him the ultimatum. And, uh, you know, that's she said, this is it. you got to go get treatment. And uh, we found Mar and uh, got here and two or three weeks of – I was just going to hang out and go home and kill myself. And then I had that moment of surrender and I started doing what they suggested I do. And damned if it didn't work. Do you remember a moment for you here at Mar where you, was there a moment where that kind of clicked for you? Yeah, well, it wasn't so much click. I shared it in my uh, story last night. Um, My first trip through here, I had been here maybe three weeks. I'd just gotten off buddy and got phone privileges and, I wasn't sold on, you know, I I was so beaten down and just so through. uh, My plan was to hang out here for 90 days and go home and kill myself, you know, and I didn't even care if it looked like an accident at that point. But uh, after about three weeks, I was in the kitchen frying fish for the community and I got a phone call from my wife and, you know, I'd been self-employed, had a very large company and it was all gone. And uh, she called me and she was handling the selling of my assets and closing the business. And she had no idea about the business. She wasn't involved in it. And some of the, you know, <laughs> some of my past trash, I'd done a job for an, an attorney and he was a crook and, it, you know, but that's not, but he had written this nasty letter saying he was going to sue us and all this. And my wife called me, she, she's freaking out. She's crying. And, uh, and there's nothing I can do about it. And uh, what really hit me harder than anything is that as freaked out as she was, she just kept saying, are you all right? Are you all right? And I was like, what kind of human being can be that scared and that overwhelmed and still be worrying about someone else? So after uh, we ended the conversation, I went back in the kitchen and uh, and I went back to cooking the, the fish and just broke down. I mean, weeping. And I mean, weeping, weeping, ugly crying. And my roommates came in. They were freaking out. You know, they thought my wife had died. They didn't know what was going on. And uh, one of my roommates was a kid named Justin. He said, well, they tell us to pray. Have you prayed? And at that point, I had no use for God. You know, I didn't even know if there was one. And if there was, I was mad at him. But I, I had no choice. I mean, that was my moment of surrender. I was done. I mean, everything I'd ever done had led me to this point. And I was just so shattered, so overwhelmed with grief and regret and shame that I went in my little bedroom there and I knelt down and prayed for like five straight minutes, crying the whole time. Just, you know, just please, God, help me. I don't even know if you're up there. Just please help me. Please help me. And... um. When I got up from praying, it wasn't a white light moment. Uh, I didn't feel any better, to tell you the truth, but uh, that moment of surrender was real. It was at that moment that I knew that I, I can't do this. You know, if there's God, if there's not, it doesn't matter. I just cannot do this. I need some help from somewhere. So I started trying to develop a concept of a higher power, and it's still evolving. I have very strong belief in in a higher power right now. Uh, but it's ever evolving. Um, you know, I've heard it said it doesn't matter what your higher power is, just so long as it's not you. you right. Know? And that's where my, as they say in the big book, ego deflation at depth. That's mm-hmm. that's where it started for me. That was my moment of surrender. And uh, and I didn't do it because I wanted to. I just had no choice. I was beaten. I was shattered. 
And then I started doing all this silly crap that Mar suggests you do and getting a sponsor and doing what he suggested. And, and I mean, I'd be damned if it didn't work, you know, it, and it worked within a couple of weeks. I started feeling better. And within a couple of weeks after that, I was, the lights came on. I was like, I, I get it now. This, <laughs> I was one of those guys that's, you know, that 12 steps, that's, it's all well and good, but it's for those other weak people. That, right. You know, they just, they, they don't know who I am. And then, but finally I, I bought into it, started doing everything that was suggested. And, you know, it just, it works. It just does. And, and it worked for me in ways that I didn't see coming. You know, it just, I don't know. It's a good way to live just at peace. Yeah, it's like I, I had experience of this last night when you were talking and just being in that room. That even people that aren't in recovery or just kind of visiting will feel that and be like, oh, whoa, what's this, you know? But it's like it's like this big kind of current or wind or something carrying you. You just have to kind of get I, in the... I couldn't agree more. It's yeah. like it, it's, you know, what, whatever you want to call it. I like to call it the spirit of the universe. That's, there you go. That's what... The, the, my sponsor counted in the big book how many different ways Bill W. referred to God, and I think there was 28 of them. Wow. But But my – the one I resonate with is spirit of the universe. What you were talking about, that current, that's – in my opinion, that's what that is. My concept of God, God's not just a noun. God is also a verb, and that's that current that you feel, that's the current, the verb God. So I was here for six months. I did three quarters for three months and then went home. I had three and a half years or three years of really good sobriety. And then without getting into the, you know, gory details, I, I essentially put my job ahead of my recovery. Even though I was in recovery and so forth, I still thought I needed all this money. And the, the marketable skill I have is construction. So I, I left treatment, not sure in 2014, not sure what I was going to do. I, I didn't care. I was at peace. You know, I was like, whatever. Um, a construction opportunity came up, and immediately got the big paycheck and got back into that world. And it was all right at first because the first couple projects I did were in Lexington. Mm -hmm. And so I was still going to meetings uh, with my sponsor. You know, I had my recovery routine. Recovery was first. Um and then I got this job out of town, working so much. You know, in hindsight, I should have just quit the damn job, you know. But I didn't. I, I got impressed the bosses. And so the recovery, it was first I couldn't go to meetings. And then I let a sponsee go because I didn't have time to fool with it. And then quit calling my sponsor. Just put recovery. It wasn't even a conscious decision to put my recovery on the back burner. It just sort of happened. And I'd heard Mar and my sponsor and everybody say it a million times, if you don't put your recovery first, you're going to lose your recovery plus whatever you put in, uh, put ahead of your recovery. That's exactly precisely what happened. You know, I just, it wasn't a conscious decision. I was just like, well, I got to work. You know, I just really didn't even think about recovery that much. It just, it's like... I'm not going to say I forgot I was an alcoholic. It was just like it was easy just to let it slide. And I don't know how to describe it other than it just – the recovery just fell by the wayside. Um, and I hated the job too. That's the odd thing. I didn't – I've never liked construction. Yeah. You know, I've been very good at it. I've always hated the stress, the everything. And I do know whenever I – you know, that job – 
when when I quit calling my sponsor, quit being involved, the stressors that I felt back in the early 2000s and it all started coming back. Mm-hmm. Every morning I started waking up, my heart hammering, that old anxiety was back. I quit sleeping at night, you know, just all those old feelings. So truthfully, I relapsed six months before I took a drink. There's just no doubt about it. I, I was living in relapse a good six months before I finally couldn't take it anymore. You know, I woke up one day and and even with all the history of all the shit storm, everything I'd done, nothing could be worse than the way I was feeling in that moment. So, you know, that you can't recall with sufficient force the impact of the last drink. That's exactly what happened. It's six o'clock in the morning. I drove through a convenience store, got a 12 pack of beer, and then the iron 20 minutes it took me to drive to work that day, drank probably nine of them. And then, you know, that's it was on, you know, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that door was open. It was March the 2nd of 2021. Um, I had Sundays and Mondays off. So it was a Monday morning, March the 2nd, and uh, I was working on a toilet at the house. And it was a day off and had to go up to Lowe's to uh, get a, you know, I don't remember what, a piece to fix the toilet. And on the on the way to Lowe's, there's a liquor store. Drinking was the furthest thing from my mind. I, I, it's, it, I hadn't thought about it in a couple of weeks. You know, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Just happened to glance over. There's that liquor store, and then what you hear in AA meetings: the truck drove itself with no conscious thought, no nothing. I just wheeled in, drove through the drive-through, got a fifth of gin, and uh, then went up to Lowe's. Came home. I didn't even drink it that day poured it into a couple of water bottles to take in to work with me the next day. And I did that. Um, started drinking. We pull out of the warehouse right at 9 o'clock. I started drinking at about 9.05. <laughs> and uh, I blacked out around noon. Um, I, got, I don't know if tolerance down or whatever. But uh, anyway, I blacked out around noon. Um, I sideswiped a car somewhere during the day, and the only reason I know that is because it's on the police report. I, I have no memory of it. Um, called my boss at like six o'clock because I still had a bunch of packages to deliver, and you know, it's you can ask for help, and they could tell I was hammered, and so they said, "Okay, we'll send you help. Stay right where you are." And they sent the police, and uh, so I got DUI, open container. I drank almost the whole fifth, but there was a little bit of left in one of the water bottles, and then leaving the scene of an accident or something. And uh, so spent the night in jail and uh, woke up the next morning, got out of jail at 7. And at about 7.15, I was on the phone with Doug Brush saying, Doug, I, I need to come back. And Doug in his way said, okay, we'd love to have you. Call admissions. And so made my second trip through Mar. And thank God for it. So what was that feeling like picking up the phone to call Doug? That, were you nervous, embarrassed? <laughs> what What was going through your mind? Nervous and embarrassed, yes, but above all, I knew Doug would there be no judgment. I knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, so it, they're shamed, embarrassed, nervous, but above all, just I knew what to expect, and it was like a relief, you know, because I know I, I loved this place when I was here the first time, and I know what this place is about. There's no judgment. There's nothing but love and acceptance here. And I, I, in my heart, I knew that, that that's what I'd get from Doug. So um, 
that's what I got. That's exactly what I ended up getting, love and acceptance. So, like I mentioned at the beginning, I got permission from Sean to speak to a few of his counselors about their experience of having him here in treatment. Here's Jordan Detweiler, one of our residential managers, talking about the moment when he found out Sean was coming back to Mar. I remember I had mixed feelings. Um, My first feeling was sadness because uh, this meant he had relapsed. And um, I mean, I'm sad whenever there's a relapse, but... Uh, with Sean, I knew him and I knew that he was someone who, who got it. Um, he, uh, did recovery, um, wholeheartedly and like he was, he was just doing good every time I saw him. Uh, he came back regularly for, um, for renewal week. Uh, like he made it a priority. Like he didn't only get recovery. He, he like loved more and, and recognized that that was a part of his recovery and that, um, like he wanted to come back and, and share about it with people. and He just got it. And so when I was like, man, Sean relapsed, it was like, damn, that sucks. And then the other feeling was, but he's, he's coming back for help. Like he's, um, it's okay. Like he's, he's returning to his place, his safe place for help. And he's going to be a huge help for people here. Um, he's going to be like, he is going to be a gift to the community, to whatever community he goes into. And at that time, when I was a residential manager up there, we had three communities and me and Matthew and Gray all talked about the other two residential managers. We talked about where are we going to put Sean? And I am pretty sure like um, we were, I don't think we were fighting over him, but we said we were kind of like, well, which community needs him the most? Because he is going to be a gift to whatever community he goes into. So what was it like going through this program a second time? Well, I knew what to expect mostly, you know, um, but still the first two or three weeks I had the DUI and the charges hanging over me. But once I got settled in, um, got to know the guys, and then especially after I've been here a month and the newer guys started coming in, kind of being, I don't want to say a mentor, but, you know, taking mm-hmm. care of the new guys and, and all that, um, I got it, – it, it reminded me why I love this place so much. Uh, and then it was during that that I, I realized how much I truly love being in and around recovery. Um you know, I said in, when I was here nine years ago how much I loved being here. That all came back. It's like, I love this. And uh, it was while I was here last spring that I decided that whatever I do to produce whatever kind of paycheck, it's some way, some form going to involve recovery. And that, that that's what I did. I, um, I decided to pursue my master's degree. Uh, um, it's called the Counselor's Education Department. It's to be a mental health counselor. So I took start, I took three classes last fall. I was working at FedEx just in the warehouse separating boxes and so forth and uh, took a couple of uh, classes this spring. And I got a couple of classes this summer. And then this fall, I'm going in full time to uh, to pursue my master's degree, hopefully do a, be an LPC um, with a focus on addiction and recovery. That's it. That's that's my main thing. I mm-hmm. want to be in and around recovery and um and then also back in the winter, um, I got a sister-in-law who's uh, she's an LPC, and she told me some about this thing called peer support, and it's a like a growing trend. It's just 
uh, for people in early recovery, uh, you know, I'm their peer because I'm an alcoholic, but I, I'm a recovered alcoholic. So um, you take training, you get certified by the state, um, and then you can find a job as a peer support specialist. Uh, now, not a counselor by any means. It's it's more like a half-ass sponsor. You know, <laughs> you, you talk to guys and I just – it, and I, I got a job doing it. You know, it's a full-time job, and I'm able to do it and go to school. But um, my job now is just to talk to people early in recovery. You know, it's it's amazing. My job is essentially just to be myself. You know, it's like, and nobody's better at that than me. You know, <laughs> so I'm just myself. I talk about my experiences and uh, try to gently and lovingly not nudge them into you know the recovery. Um, a lot of them, they're drug court participants in, in Kentucky, and a lot of them, they just don't care, you know, and, and that's fine. I've been there. But, you know, every now and then you see the light come on uh, when you're talking to one of them. They say, okay, I'll give this a try. So it's, you know, it's it's rewarding, and and I just love it. I, I was just meeting with Mark Anderson. I, if, if someone offered me a job for three times what I make now, there's no way I'd take it. You know, I heard my whole life about people loving their jobs. I thought that was a myth. I honestly thought that because I'd never experienced it. I've never before this, I'd never had a day of work that I didn't hate what I was doing, whether it was construction or UPS or anything else. But now, man, I wake up in the morning. I don't have to go to work. I get to go to work. It's it's really remarkable. You know, God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, I guess. I don't know. But it's um, I'm I'm much more. I'm more happy and content and serene than than I deserve to be. Mm. You know, Matt Irwin's favorite saying is, thank God life's not fair. Because mm. if it was fair, I'd be sitting in jail right now. Instead of sideswiping a car, I'd sw- I could have sideswiped a, a kid. You know, I'd be in jail for the next 20, 30 years, you know. So uh, by the grace of the spirit of the universe, I'm here. And uh, it's it's just such a remarkable, you know. I didn't know living like this was an option before I got into recovery. It's not like somebody said, oh, you could live peaceful and serene, live a a useful life. And I said, oh, no, thanks. You know, I just didn't know this was an option. Mm -hmm. And it just is. And it's there for anybody that wants it, you know, but it's for a lot of people letting go, deflate that ego, you know, let let go and and just try this. some people, they're just not there yet, and that's fine. You know, it, it, it takes what it takes. But, you know, it's, it's such a peaceful way to live, and it just takes so much less energy to live in recovery than it does to live in addiction. You know, it's just it's, it's great. I just wish it for everybody. And here's Matthew Reese, another MAR counselor, talking about his memory of Sean when he was in treatment, what he added to the community, and continues to provide for others seeking recovery. Yeah, so I mean, he was a he was a guy I could really relate to in terms of there was a lot of stuff going on. He's got a special needs son that um, I related personally to a lot of aspects of what he was talking about. Um, it was stuff I didn't really feel at liberty to discuss from a counselor perspective, but from a personal perspective, I understood the additional struggle that created around his process of recovery um and one day he was talking about just the 
trying to grasp like the purpose of all this suffering and I had made the comment, you know, that the Buddha said that life is suffering and he just said, well, f Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> he said it very summarily. Have you read that book or any of the book he wrote? No, I haven't. You know about that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, man, it's intense. You read it? Mm. It's a good book? I, I liked it quite a lot, man. Yeah, I was delighted that he decided to go into the work, you know, the addiction recovery field. Um, and we had some conversations around that. I, as I recall, it was after he left. I think he called me at one point just to kind of ask about, or maybe we even did a Zoom, I don't remember, but just to talk about, like, potential avenues of, you know, pursuing a degree and how to get into the field and all that kind of stuff, which in Kentucky there's a great deal available. And not no surprise to me at all that he quickly found a way into that. But um What what was it you said you were delighted when you heard that he was planning to go into the field. What was it uh, is there something about his personality or um some like something about him in particular that made you think he, that would be a good fit for him? Yeah, I mean, I always, I think he got that feedback from several people here, but he's one of the only people I've ever just come out and said, man, you, you would probably benefit from working in this field, and I think other people would benefit from you doing it. It's just because his uh, he has a lot of enthusiasm for it, and it's clear that as he's giving to people, it's filling him up. Like, there's a reciprocal relationship there and he just is able to do it in a way that he seems he's very relatable um i guess i just had the sense that a lot of people could benefit from getting the opportunity to work with him like in a professional capacity um probably give him a chance to touch more lives than he would solely as a, from a sponsorship angle so if you could pass on something to People that are listening that are thinking of maybe coming to treatment themselves here at Mar, or like some, or or maybe looking at it for a family member, what would you pass on to them about your experience? Well, I guess first, when someone's in the midst of addiction, you can't really reach them. You know, you couldn't reach me when I was in the midst of my alcoholism. I had to get to a place. I had to go beyond desperate to get to hopeless before I was ready for recovery. But if someone's contemplating it, what have you got to lose by trying it? You've got nothing to lose. Just give it a shot. I mean, uh, a life of peace and serenity and usefulness, it it's not as far away as you think. It, it's just right there. And, uh, you know, take a few suggestions from Mar. Take a few suggestions from a sponsor. Take a few suggestions from 12 Steps. Give it a shot. Really give it an honest shot. And if it doesn't work for you, don't do it anymore. But try it because you've got nothing to lose. You know, whatever Mar or the 12 Steps, wherever it leads you, it cannot possibly be worse than where your addiction left you. So why not give it a shot? And it's... It'll work in ways that you don't see coming. Thank you so much, Sean. This was such a pleasure to, to sit with you and get like a follow-up to that, that great story you told last night. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. This, is a, this has been great. I look forward to hearing it when it comes out. Absolutely. All right. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. 
Our executive producer is David Tate. Our theme music is performed by Jordan Detweiler. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at marinc.org. That's podcast at M-A-R-R-I-N-C dot O-R-G. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for joining us. And we're already looking forward to next time. <laughs>